Welcome to God's Word During Exile, and it's good to have you back. We uh, recognize that there are maybe some new people listening or watching to this as we got our new Facebook page up and running, and uh, we're excited to see that a number of people have liked this and are going to be following this. So hopefully we've got some new listeners, uh, but uh, we also are grateful for those of you who have been plugging along with us for quite a while now, and uh, we're looking forward to getting into God's Word more with you as we look at Revelation, and also looking forward to Pastor Mike Natal being back with us next week as he gets back from vacation. So uh, as we get ready for that, send lots of emails with questions and comments to our email address, which is uh, all one word, no uh, punctuation, God's word during exile at gmail.com. And uh, we'd yeah. love to hear from you. Load him up with stuff because Natal's yeah. the only one that can check it. So like a hundred <laughs> messages from each of you this week. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So just overwhelm him. And, uh, but you know what? He's been kind of pestering us, checking in on us during his vacation to make sure we're on track. So I'm sure he would be excited to hear from you. And, uh, and to get some questions loaded up for next week. Also, I just encourage you to check us out on the podcasts. If you're uh, not doing it that way, then you can listen in the car or your, your tractor while you're doing some field work or whatever it might be that you're up to. Uh, hopefully those uh, make it more accessible for you to join us uh, for this Bible study. But we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 1 once again. And beginning at verse 12, and to kick us off today, we're going to have Pastor Ben, or actually Pastor Mike, praying for us, and then Pastor Ben will read our passage. We're going to try to finish up the first chapter if we can, but uh, we know that we sometimes get caught up with some of the conversations, so we'll just take it as we go, uh, but we'll be reading through the rest of chapter one here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you so much for today. Um, thank you for another opportunity to gather around your holy word. Lord, your word is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us by that truth. Lord, as we now dig into Revelation chapter 1, try to finish up the chapter, I pray that you would show us our sin and need for a Savior. And Lord, point us to Jesus Christ, who lived the life we could not live, who suffered and died bearing our sins, and rose again, also that we might be redeemed, we might be saved, that we might have eternal life with you. God, by your word, strengthen our faith in you, we pray. Amen. Amen. Take it away, Ben. All right, so Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. This is from the English Standard Version. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, 
fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are about or that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Here ends the reading. All right. So we are back in Revelation chapter one, and we're really starting to hit the first of John's visions, the first of the really interesting things that he sees that God reveals to him. Um, could you guys imagine being in John's shoes and seeing this vision of the Son of Man in this passage? Like, we're going to get into the details of this and talk about all the little things, but I'm, I'm just struck by this vision of the Son of Man, just in full glory. It's amazing. Uh, it would blow my mind to actually be able to see this, and thankfully, um, one day, we all will see uh, the glorified Christ in heaven. Uh, but John's not the only one that's gotten to see visions like this, is he? No, it kind of reminds me of the transfiguration in ways that you hear that. And um, indeed, some have suggested that Revelation is John's account of the transfiguration in the way that he speaks of Christ. Um, but it's not only in the New Testament that we that we find that as well. Uh, Matt, were you going to say something about that too? Yeah, I mean, you kind of mentioned that that idea because John, otherwise in the Gospel of John, we don't have that account of the transfiguration, and so some have thought that maybe this was his way of of uh, expressing that. Um, but we would, I would even say though that this is even more amazing than the transfiguration account. This is this is like uh similar glory but even more revealed maybe is a way to understand it um and so it's it's quite uh quite impressive and some of the details are amazing there's and there's lots of symbolism and pictures in the description here uh that we're gonna get to look at but this is absolutely stunning uh but like you said this goes way back to the old testament and and uh, we've got other pictures in the Old Testament, too, that this is alluding to, although I would say that, like, as we go through the scriptures, we see more and more unfolding or unveiling, and so it just gets better and better, brighter and brighter, more and more descriptive. Um, but uh, I think it's good to realize that a lot of this stuff is anchored in Old Testament worship and Old Testament prophecies and visions as well. So I don't know if we want to lead us through here, Mike, or how, Oh yeah, how we for wanna... sure. I, I had one more thought too, um, cause you guys both brought up the transfiguration um, <clears throat> and talked about how this is like even more expanded and even greater. Well, if you look at John's response here in 17, we'll deal with this more in a bit, but he sees the, the glorified Christ here in Revelation and he falls as though dead. But when you talk about mm -hmm. those transfiguration accounts, uh, the guys didn't fall on their faces terrified uh, until God the Father speaks from heaven. So they saw the glorified Christ, but this is even more intense and more, mm -hmm. more crazy. Um, now, crazy is the wrong word. Amazing would be the right word, right? Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> awesome sauce. Super fluty, even. 
Natal, where's your where's your picture of Doug Flutie? Yeah, I hope that during his vacation, he's just been coming up with tons of memes and pictures and sound effects, and yep. you know, for us. So I really we, hope so. We really need that to bring us to the next level here. <laughs> uh, should we take a look at one of those passages from the Old Testament? Should we look at Daniel seven and and kind of some of these comparisons, and then we can dig into the details of Revelation? Um, I can read the Daniel seven passage. Um, have you guys got that that chart ready that we had taken a look at before? Um, in a minute, that's a the chart's actually from Daniel ten, but oh, um, I think the I mean we can we can read thirteen and fourteen of chapter seven uh, yeah. as well. Um, okay, I'll start there. Daniel seven, uh, thirteen and fourteen. Uh, I'm reading out of the ESV as well. Yeah. We read in Jesus' name. I saw in the night visions <clears throat> and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Yeah. Okay. So we have, there basically the introduction of this one like a son of man and the reason why this this kind of sets the foundation we'll get a little more of a description of him uh in daniel chapter 10 um but we have you know the son of man who ascends to the ancient of days and the ancient of days is you know speaking of you know god the father um, this one, like the son of man, you know, notice the language that is attached to him, that he has given a, an eternal dominion, right. And a kingdom and peoples. And, and this very much sounds like how Jesus speaks of himself, that all authority has been given, uh, to him in heaven and on earth. Um, he, this speaks also of the, the promise given by God to David, that God would build him a house and it would remain forever, that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. And this speaks of Christ and his everlasting kingdom, um, one that will not be destroyed. Um, and so, and we see the ascension to the ancient of days. And so we hear their echoes of Christ's own ascension. And so, um, so this is where we're kind of introduced to the son of man. And we should note too, that this is Jesus' favorite uh, designation of himself in the New Testament is the Son of Man, and he intends us to to understand it in light of Daniel seven and and ten. So, um, before we move on to ten, was there anything else about seven that? Yeah, I think there? I'd like to draw our attention to the language that's being used here for the Son of Man, and re recognize that uh, as he comes before the Ancient of Days, talking about God the Father, um, that that all of the things that come after this are things that uh, we understand should only belong to God. We, we recognize that if anybody throughout all the scriptures and stuff, if anybody was taking God's glory for himself, that would be blasphemy. That would be idolatry. Yeah. That would be condemned. God would attack that person. That would be mm -hmm. you know, an enemy of God. That would be, and it would be wrong. It would be untrue for anybody else to have God's glory besides God himself. The same thing with this eternal dominion. That's, that's a dominion that only belongs to God himself and so on. And so as we understand this, we got to recognize that this is a shocking portrayal. This one who is 
like a person. He's a like a human. He's a son of man. The, the, the idea of the term is like son of Adam, a, a human being, right? And yet this one who's coming, not only is he coming in a very unusual way for a human, coming on the clouds, uh, but he is given glory that only belongs to God. He's given eternal dominion that only belongs to God. And he is going to rule as king forever. And so right now we're talking about this is too much for any human being. This is a, just incredible language. So um, uh, it's exciting to think about what the, the implications of that are. And if Jesus is taking that turn, that title for himself, he's saying a whole lot. If Jesus is really referring to that, no wonder the Pharisees would call blasphemy at some of his statements and try to stone him for, um, for presenting himself as God. Yeah, definitely. Excuse me. I tried to mute that and then just kind of like coughed into my microphone. Sorry guys. (laughs) And then it locked up and I couldn't talk. Silly zoom. Uh, Are we ready to move on to Daniel 10 before I screw anything else up for today? (laughs) Let's do it. All right. So Daniel 10, I'll start in verse two, unless you guys want to start in one. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for three full weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold, a man clothed in linen, a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were there with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and he set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come to you because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. I think that's an all right place to stop, or do I need to read any more? Mm-hmm. That's probably fine. Okay. Um, one thing that should note before we look at the chart, and just keep in mind, because this is going to come up as we um, get to the end of our, our section in chapter one, is that, so Daniel sees this this vision and this um, you know man clothed in in linen and and so on right and you know his face is like lightning and all of this right and Daniel is afraid right 
is fearful. And what does this man say to Daniel? He absolves him, right? Oh, Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And then later he'll say, fear not, Daniel. And so he comforts him in the midst of his fear. And we see this also over and over again, how Jesus will come to uh, his disciples, like when he appears to them after his resurrection and they're afraid. And what does he say to them? Fear not, right? He gives them peace and comfort or peace be with you. Fear not. Um, So he acts in the same way as this, this one, like the son of man here in Daniel 10. Okay. So I'll pull up that chart. So we can see the similarity of language. Hopefully this will work all right. Well, you look for that. I was thinking too about how later on it says that uh, in verse 16, and behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. And so uh, similar to the picture in Isaiah when Isaiah is is, um, completely uh, humbled and, and broken down in the the lord's uh throne room and and he he has his mouth touched with the burning coal and this uh, kind of a picture of i think cleansing and and blessing mm-hmm. uh work of the lord there yeah okay is this showing up all right can you yeah. guys see that okay so yeah and big apologies to you guys that listen to this as a podcast you can't see oh, this right. chart, but we'll try to explain it to you as best <laughs> as we can yeah, so this is from uh, Andrew Steinman's commentary on Daniel in the Concordia commentary series that uh, Concordia Publishing House puts out. Um, and he has just a really helpful chart here which shows the similarity of, of language or the similarity of the divine figures in Daniel 10. He includes also Ezekiel chapter 1 and then in Revelation 1 where, where we are. So um, I don't know, Mike, you want to work through the... A chart or yeah sure i can do that so as we read both passages both in revelation and daniel i'm sure you heard some things that sounded really similar um but looking at like revelation 113 um the figure we have described there in revelation is like the son of man well the wording is almost the same in daniel chapter chapter 10 verse 5 the appearance like a man a son of man you know, so very similar stuff. The way they're clothed, also very, very similar. Um, we've got a long robe in Revelation, that's verse 13. And in Daniel, he's clothed in a linen garment. Now that, that linen garment, um, as we were talking earlier, that also brings our minds back to something, um, something else in scripture back in, it was in the book of Leviticus chapter 16, 16. right? Leviticus chapter 16, and that, Matt, that was kind of your thing. So what is that? So um, in Leviticus 16, there's something significant that's happening. Uh, previous to this, uh, in all of the setup for Israel's worship, the priests were told to wear robes and this clothing that was very colorful and beautiful and ornate. And, and then, uh, so they would do their the sacrifices on behalf of the people running all of the rituals on God's behalf to purify, uh, cleanse, uh, and atone for the sins of the people. Uh, but then on the most special, uh, part of the ritual one day a year when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, something really changed. 
um, and he switched his clothes and he put on linen garments. And uh, so this would have been a linen robe, a linen undergarments, and a linen turban on his head. And he ties a sash uh, around his body as well, which we're going to see in a moment. Uh, but, but this change uh, signifies something. The colorful, beautiful, ornate clothing was used normally as the priests would represent God to the people. So they were appearing in a way that was kind of glorious to the people. They would see, see all this be beautiful colors and things um, like God is beautiful and uh, glorious. So they were representing God uh, to the people. But then when they changed their clothes to linen, they were, this was more of a humble, simple, uh, probably a white or kind of off-white colored linen, I imagine. Uh, so more of a humble, simple thing. Um, as they went on behalf of the humble people into God's presence. And so this is a picture of the high priest going in to make, uh, uh, or to go before the Lord in the Holy of Holies. And again, this is especially significant because on this one day of the year, the there was special cleansing of all of these instruments and things in the tabernacle that God used to be a blessing to the people but also their sins were put on the scapegoat on that day and not just their unintentional sins, accidental sins or uh, ritual impurities, but every sin, even their intentional deliberate sins, the worst of their sins and every single one of them were put on this goat that day and ejected from the Holy of Holies and out of the tabernacle into the wilderness and far, far away from the people, picturing God's removal of sin from his people uh, collectively, but also as individuals. And, and so a powerful picture of this work of uh, the high priest on behalf of the people to remove sin. I think this is an intentional connection here it does mention that these are linen garments that the Son of Man is is wearing. And so I think this is a direct connection to that Day of Atonement, or if you've heard, uh, as the Jews call it, Yom Kippur. Yeah, it's a kind of an amazing connection there to, you know, Jesus being our great high priest, just with that with that one mention of the of the linen garments that we've got. It's a pretty pretty cool thing to see. Um, but we'll see there's a, there's a lot more connected between what's going on in Daniel and in Revelation. Matt mentioned a little bit, we've got that uh, golden belt around his waist, and in Revelation, it's around his chest. Um, then there are a few differences, right? So in, in Daniel uh, verse 6, it talks about the appearance of his body, but we don't, we don't get that explanation in the book of Revelation at all. Uh, it talks about a face in both places. Uh, in, uh, in the book of Daniel, it says his face is like lightning. And in the book of Revelation, it says his face is shining like the sun. And we might not equate these two things to each other right away because the sun and lightning are, you know, quite different. But what happens when you stare right into lightning or stare right into the sun? Blinded. You're blinded, right? So Fun. it's yeah. It may not on the surface sound similar, but it really, really is. It's it's a blinding brightness in in both cases, in both places in Revelation and in Daniel. 
The eyes of this son of man are said to be like burning torches in Daniel, flames of fire. So very, very similar there. As we talk about the arms um, uh, and, and feet in Daniel, they're talked about being like polished bronze in Revelation. We've also got polished bronze, but also refined in a furnace. And then we find the voices are very similar too. Uh, Daniel says it's it's like an army. Um, and then in, I think our translation said rushing waters though, didn't it? In the ESV? And then in Revelation, no, maybe it doesn't. Maybe I'm crazy. In Revelation, it talked about that. So that's that's why my brain was thinking about many waters. So the voice is very, very similar in both places. So um, this son of man that was seen in the book of Daniel by, by Daniel is the same son of man we're talking about here in the book of Revelation, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Pr pretty clearly, we can't really avoid that those two are the same thing. Yep. And uh, we weren't really looking at this one in particular, but also for those of you listening on the chart, there was also another parallel passage in Ezekiel chapter one, where we see some of those uh, similar descriptions. So you can check that out for yourself too. And, uh, but this is all intentional connections that we're supposed to see here. And I think that's very significant. Yeah. And I think it just reinforces again, what uh, we talked about quite a bit and kind of our preparatory uh, episodes and so on leading up to this is that you know scripture is uh, of a single unit um, and so Old Testament New Testament they're pieces of the whole and so it would make perfect sense then to under to understand that um, you know Jesus shows up in the Old Testament and this is um, part of the way that that the writers of the New Testament show that and demonstrate that unity is they use the same kind of language. Um, you know, and you see John has very similar visions. I mean, you know, certainly the specific messages are different than Daniel, but he's seeing the same person who is giving him that word. Um, and so the consistency and description and the similarity is quite striking. And I think it just reinforces for us that everything that we are reading in the New Testament is built upon the Old Testament for Christ is the the center and object of all of it. And so um, I think it just testifies to the unity of the scriptures once again. As, as always, it's all about Jesus, right guys? That's true. <laughs> all right. So should we hop in and start breaking this down by verse by verse here? Yeah, let's do it. So we started in verse 12. Uh, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Um, I don't know what to think of when I hear this word lampstands because I frankly hate candles. So like the only candles I think of are tea lights. Um, but I'm getting the impression from Revelation that we're not talking about seven golden tea lights, right? Right. So the I think the picture here then is of... Uh, uh, this particular lampstand would be like a menorah, as we hear from, uh, you know, the Jewish celebrations. And this goes back all the way to the tabernacle and the lampstand, the golden lampstand that God had laid out in Ezekiel. And then in Leviticus, uh, it gets put into use uh, in the tabernacle. And if I understand correctly, and, and this is off top of my, my mind and my memory, uh, that the this lampstand was 75 pounds of solid gold. 
It was only and, 74 and three quarter pounds, Matt. I'm sorry, okay. my brain is failing you. <laughs> so, uh, but it's also very beautiful um, and and ornate and, and designed. And then it has, I believe, seven different spots on it um, for candles. And so you've got seven lights on one uh, lampstand. And, uh, and so maybe you've seen pictures or you're familiar with the menorah. Uh, so, uh, quite a, quite a unique, uh, lampstand that we're talking about. Very beautiful and significant too, as it has all these connections to the worship of God's people. And so when this was being used back in the tabernacle and then in the temple for worship, this, I believe was a representation of, of God's presence uh, in the midst of the people. So the, the candlestick was in God's presence, but it also was representing him being there uh, in, in that whole most holy place. And so uh, a powerful illusion here. This is no normal lampstand or, or candle that we're talking about here. And Matt, Matt said illusion, not illusion. Right. Yep. <laughs> not a magic trick. <laughs> good, good. Uh, <laughs> so uh pretty amazing thing for john to see um but without the explanation that comes later in the passage of revelation it would be kind of a still kind of an obscure like why in the world is this here sort of thing like you see this amazing vision of of the son of man of jesus and yet john mentions that there are some candlesticks laying around right mm -hmm. but when we get down to, to verse 20 of our of our chapter one of Revelation, um, Jesus goes on to explain that, hey, they, these, these golden lampstands, they, they stand for something, um, and they stand for the, the seven churches that we're going to be sending out this, these coming letters to, that this book of Revelation was originally addressed to. So they, they have even, even more purpose than we would find from the Old Testament. They've got more to it even than that. So keep that in your mind that these represent the churches as we look uh, further then. Yeah. And just as we, we think about that too, we might just think, you know, just kind of quite simply, um, what is the purpose of a lampstand, right? And it is to give light. So it kind of carries that imagery too of, you know, Jesus speaks of the church as the light of the world um, as we have, uh, the gospel of Christ himself and as it goes forth and conquers the darkness. And so we kind of have that, that idea, um, the city on the hill, the, the light shining in the, in the darkness uh, associated there as well. And so to connect these two pictures, then if the candlesticks and, and I think properly the, actually the light, the flame on the candlesticks is what represents God's presence. And if the lampstands are the, the church, you know, then the, these individual lights that are on it, you know, representing, I think, the individuals in the church. So you got multiple lights in one, one lampstand, right? So individual believers in one church, but they each have the flame, the presence of the Lord. And we think about how um, God represented the presence of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost with the flames of fire. Um, and, and throughout scriptures, uh, the, the Lord's presence is often described as uh, a fire, both in the tabernacle and the temple, in the burning bush for Moses, the day of Pentecost, 
and and we recognize that when we are baptized in uh, into Christ and thus into the church, we have the Holy Spirit with us, who is represented as fire. And so again, this is a picture of God's presence, but living inside of us, members of the church. This lampstand. All right, let's keep moving into verse 13. Uh, in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Did you guys have any other comments on, uh, on that title, the son of man, or any of those things? We kind of hit some of it already. Was there anything else you wanted to say well, on that part? You know, this, Ben mentions this is the favorite title of Jesus for himself, um, and that's very significant. It is used in the book of Ezekiel to refer to Ezekiel and, you know, um, in a different way. But the most significant way, and we are drawn to understand uh, it this way, uh, the, is the illusion in Daniel. And we've already talked about that, that we are to go to that place to get our definition of the Son of Man uh, because of all of these other parallels to... Um, to that passage. And so it's a, it's definitely referring to that. So I think it, it, it refers certainly to his humanity and that's by, you know, an intentional move to draw our attention to uh, Jesus being born as a little babe and, um, and becoming a man, a brother of ours, one, one of us, a human being. And he certainly had to do that to die uh, to live in our place and then to die. Uh, and, and so he took on flesh in that way, but there's also powerful allusions here. Uh, allusions. <laughs> I didn't say that very clearly. Maybe I was kind of slipping there, <laughs> but, uh, powerful allusions here to not only just his humanity, but to these prophecies in Daniel about the authority that would be given to him in the end, to have the glory of God, to rule and have dominion, to judge in the end, all things that belong to God alone. And so the picture here is of Jesus, the human, but in his glorified state. And so through his life, death, and resurrection and ascension, then he um, comes and becomes a son of man, but then also takes up that authority and that glory of God. And we look to him to come again in the end. And we see the connections then that he will come in, in, in the, on the last day to judge all the people, just like it's prophesied in Daniel. And so it has a ton of connections um, through the gospel accounts and, and Jesus' life and ministry on earth. But it has this humongous arc um, that ends in the eternal dominion and glory of, of the Son of Man uh, as God in the end. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting because oftentimes, you know, Jesus will use that title, the Son of Man, uh, in connection with uh, divine activity. So, for example, he will say, like when he raises the paralytic um, and heals him, he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Well, only God can forgive sins, but here is the Son of Man forgiving sins. And it's just, it's interesting because I, I remember some, some years ago, it was kind of interesting. R.C. Sproul was kind of commenting that it seemed like uh, more often than not when Jesus would use 
uh, son of man. It was more in connection to, you know, things of, of his deity. And he was kind of puzzling about that a little bit, you know, but I think it makes sense if, if you understand that what Jesus is doing is saying, I'm, I'm the guy in Daniel seven and 10 and 12. Well, it makes sense then because that's a divine figure. And so it makes sense that the son of man is associated with divinity and deity. And, um, and it's also important to, to see in that too, because this will play into how we kind of understand uh, revelation as a whole and, and so on. And I know we've talked about some of this in previous episodes, but in Daniel seven, the one like the son of man, he is ascending to uh, the ancient of days and he receives there a kingdom that is eternal and forever. And so that is uh, very much so the ascension of Christ. Um, you know, he ascends to his father to receive the kingdom. Again, his, his words to, uh, the disciples in what we call the great commission before he ascends into heaven from them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And so, you know, Christ is enthroned in heaven and has dominion now and has for, you know, the last 2000 some years and will continue uh, to do so. Um, and so he is reigning now. He is ruling now. We don't have to wait for something in the future for Christ to be reigning. He is really, truly reigning now. And it is the eternal kingdom, not something that will just get snuffed out and pass away, you know, after a certain period of time. And so um, we are meant to understand Daniel 7 in connection with Christ's ascension. And again, also the promise to David that God would build him a house and his descendant would sit on the throne forever. And so there it is in, in Jesus, the son of man, the son of David, the eternal king reigning on his throne. Now, both of you guys talked about that reign of Jesus. And there's actually another thing in verse 13 that points to his kingship. You know, Matt already talked about the, the robe sort of pointing to his priesthood, you know, being the great high priest that offers himself as the greatest sacrifice, the lamb of God, that perfect sacrifice that covers the sin of the world. But the, the high priest would, war, would wear a, a plain sash, a linen one, for the Day of Atonement. This golden sash uh, that's here actually points to his kingship and his rule and his reign that's already going on, has been mentioned at the start of the Ascension, and is going to continue on forever and ever and ever. Mm -hmm. How many evers before we get an amen? <laughs> amen. Amen. <laughs> so, I think the, you know, this... The idea of Jesus as a king is an important one too, and we see that, you know, he um, he is given that dominion and authority um, after his resurrection, and and thinking about uh, his victory, but also being uh, given this authority from God, um, the Ancient of Days. Uh, so he's taking up this eternal kingship, which was promised to. King David way back in that promise to him. So again, connecting to the Old Testament, God's plan all the way through that, that there would be one from the line of David who would sit on the throne for eternity and rule. And Jesus takes that up or is, is, is crowned king uh, after his resurrection and he has ascended and now rules and, and beautiful picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so just real quick before we move on. So what we are waiting for, with the return of Christ is not the establishment of his kingdom, but the fullness of his kingdom coming where the kingdom of God is now the kingdom of this earth, or how does he say it? The kingdom of this earth is now the kingdom of God and of his Christ. That's what we are waiting for. The fullness of it, the full experience of it. We're not waiting for it to be established. It is already that 
Um, so that's important for us to remember. We are not looking to the future for Christ's kingdom and reign to be established sometime in the future. It is that now. We are waiting for the full experience uh, and manifestation of that kingdom, which is eternal. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's keep on rolling. We hit verse 14. The hairs of his head are white, like white wool, like snow. Um, his eyes were like a flame of fire. I don't know about you guys, but when I think of like powerful and amazing and fantastic people, Gandalf I don't the white. think, what was that? Gandalf the white, right? Gan- okay. All right. <laughs> was, okay. So there's an exception, but I'm generally not thinking of someone that's, that's got a, a head full of white hair, right? That's not generally what we think of. So what is what is verse 14 getting at? It's got to be more than just Jesus is old, which he I, is because he's eternal. That's right. Um, you know, I, I laugh when I think about this picture here because of it being talking about his hair being white. And not, it's not saying gray here or whatever, which is how we often refer to somebody's hair color when they age. But I think of my father-in-law, Tony, and he's always uh, telling us because he's he's got totally white hair. It's and he's like, oh, I'm blonde. And uh, he's just because he was like <laughs> platinum blonde when he was young. And then it just transitioned to like pure white. It, ne- it never was like gray or speckled. It was just it was almost like no noticeable difference in, <laughs> as he aged. And so I just have this picture of him and his still amazing blonde hair uh, and in his later years. Uh, but Mike, this is actually Mike Power, our, uh, our common ginger friend is going to go beautifully <laughs> white too. He's not going to go gray. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be fun. Yeah. Uh, so, but this is a picture I believe of, of wisdom here. The scriptures talk about, uh, about a, a hair of, of, uh, you know, like white or gray hair uh, from age and maturity, uh, as as a crown of splendor or and righteous wisdom, we think of Proverbs sixteen and chapter twenty, and um, and so is something that was to be uh, respected and honored. Honestly, I think that we we don't respect our elders and honor them enough in our society. We tend to kind of get rid of them and send them off somewhere and forget about them, uh, or or to dishonor them. Uh, I think those are huge mistakes. God has uh, blessed our, our older people with wisdom and maturity. We can understand that. Um, and, and that, I mean, even with the presidential elections here, they, there's an age requirement, right? Because you have to have a certain amount of um, uh, wisdom that you gain through the years, experience, and those kind of things. And so if we're thinking, well, who's the most experienced one, the one with the most wisdom? Well, it's the one who has been around for, you know, from eternity and uh, before time even began. And that's Jesus, the, the one with full wisdom. And, uh, and we ought to respect him and give him honor in, in the highest regard. Yeah. And uh, hopefully I'm not repeating what was already said or something, but just that the whiteness of his hair, um, you know, again, it it connects back to the ancient of days uh, as well. So that, so that the son of man shares the same attributes again as the ancient of days. And so again, this testifies to the deity of the son of man. 
right? So um, the ancient of days, there's no question that this is, this is God the Father, this is, you know, divine being. Well, now the ascended Christ, the Son of Man, shares the same attributes. He has the same description. He is white like wool, like snow. And so, um, so yeah, so it kind of just speaks of, you know, Christ shares the deity of his Father, the glory and worship, you know, given to God the Father is also then given to the Son. And when we have pictures of white like wool and white like snow, there's also, that's drawing our attention to the purity and righteousness, I believe, of Jesus. Um, as we think about our sins being, you know, though they're red like scarlet, they will be as white as wool, uh, washed, you know, like snow. And that's a picture of uh, sinlessness, perfection, purity, mm-hmm. righteousness. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we'll so, see that in Revelation uh, seven too, when we get there, right? The saints have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and they've become mm-hmm. white. You know, mm-hmm. So John's even going to repeat that same theme. Yep. So the next, uh, next bit we have about um, this son of man is that her eyes, that her eyes, his eyes, <laughs> his, 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 his eyes. It's important. <laughs> <clears throat> his eyes are like a flame of fire. Uh, that sounds horrifying. Yeah. Does it not? Benjamin, yeah. should I be horrified about Jesus's eyes being a flame of fire? Because I tell you what, um, I meet a guy in a back alley, he's got fiery flaming eyes. I'm running away. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I suppose that's why, you know, Jesus gives comfort and peace to John and, you know, to, to Daniel and so on, because, well, you know, for a sinner to encounter such a figure would be quite terrifying um but yeah so we see we see in that too a connection to the ancient of days as well as his throne is flaming with fire and so um there seems to be another connection point here to the divine figure of daniel 10 um so the son of man then is i again identified uh with the ancient of days as a divine figure um and uh, Lou Brighton in his commentary uh, just comments that, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, fire is often uh, associated with the holy purifying presence of God. Um, and so, you know, and that holy presence is destructive to evil, right? And so, um, you know, Jesus has these piercing fiery eyes, you know, he is the one whom God has authorized to, to judge the world and destroy evil and purify his people. And so, so depending on, you know, are your sins forgiven or not? Yeah, that would be a really terrifying thing for, you know, for Christ, the son of man with flaming eyes to be coming after you to destroy, you know, sin and, and those who refuse to repent. Right. Um, But at the same time, it is a it is a comfort to the people of God whose sins are forgiven because that fiery uh, wrath of God, which is just and right, will not harm them for their sins have been covered by the blood of the Lamb. And so we kind of have that both and you know aspect there that the destruction of you know evil is also the salvation of God's people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that stare that would be bring you know, terror in the hearts of the enemies is also one that, you know, we can be proud of uh, as believers that he is, you know, fighting for us. And, um, and it's an awesome sight to see 
you know, but definitely you wouldn't want to be the one he's staring down. No. <laughs> right. <laughs> You, you want to be on the side where you're like, hey, see the guy with the burning eyes? Yeah, I'm glad I'm on his side. <laughs> it's, not, it's not good to be on the other side. <laughs> right. All right, let's keep moving on in this description. Verse 15, we start hearing about his feet are like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And we hear about his voice like the roar of many waters. Uh that feet thing was really similar to what was going on in the book of Daniel. They were both talking about burnished bronze, but, but what is this, what does this mean? I mean, it sounds impressive, but what, what's it pointing us to? Yeah. It's like uh, a, a picture of, you know, some real heavy duty boots here. He's got like steel toed boots on here, right? He's ready to, stomp around and uh i don't i had that song these boots are made for walking you know i'm gonna walk all over you <laughs> don't don't go down that line too far uh, no, no. but uh but i think the picture here is of these like strong strong feet and uh and he's he's gonna do some stomping he's gonna crush his enemies and makes me think of passages that talk about the fact that uh that he's going to make the his enemies a footstool for his feet, and and a picture of of God, uh, Jesus triumphing over his enemies in in the end, uh, and and uh, again kind of a war picture here uh, that that both is meant to terrify enemies but also comfort those whom he is defending and fighting for. Yeah, it's, it's, I think, important to keep bringing that, that piece of it up is, you know, it's not just the destruction of the wicked. It's not just the crushing of the enemies, but that is also, you know, our salvation, the salvation of his people. Um, keep reminding us of that, that hope and all those good things that are in there. In uh, can, referring to what I, or looking at a couple of verses uh, about what I was talking about here in 1 Corinthians 15, um, says, uh, well, going back a couple of verses here to 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, uh, verse 25, for he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And uh, it goes on, but I think that's the, con you know, one of the connections we ought to be making with this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then into the connection to Hebrews there that uh, he just mentions that we don't currently see everything in subjection to the sun, but nonetheless it is, even though we don't see it uh, with our eyes. Now we will see it when Christ returns and it is in fact real now that Christ reigns and his enemies are subject to him. How, how good is that news? Uh, mm -hmm. A couple days after the election, right? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and we still don't know who's going to be elected right. president of the United <laughs> States. It's, is it right. Biden? Is it Trump? Who knows? We may yeah. not know in a month. I have no idea, right. but our King reigns. <laughs> He has been reigning. He continues to reign. It's he's in control. 
and we can rest in that. And that is a joyful, wonderful place to be, right? Yeah. I mean, even this, people like Cyrus get called God's servant in the Old Testament. I'm pretty sure God can use our president too. That's right. And this picture of the the voice like a roar of mighty waters, we think, I mean, he's got a huge, powerful voice. And the, the voice of God throughout scripture puts terror in the hearts of men. And um, and it's impressive every time that God reveals his his voice. But uh, but also he uses his voice for great comfort, you know, for the people like he did with uh with Daniel there that, you know, fear not. And, and that's usually what he has to say after he initially talks to them uh, is also to come back with that big, powerful voice and comfort them. Um, it, the, the illustration here uh, reminds me just of the power of the ocean. And if you're familiar with uh, being at the, in the ocean or next to the ocean, it's a, it's a powerful thing. And, and uh, when you're when you're in the like in a storm or or big powerful waves, I mean that can be absolutely terrifying. I think of this place in California that was near uh, where I did my internship or vicarage. Um, that uh, the the current there, this undercurrent, was just deadly, and there was this this little Catholic uh, chapel or, or or church there. Uh, right in this little bay. And I don't know what, you know, if that was put there before all these people started dying there or what, but, or if they put the church there because so many people were dying in the current of this place. But I mean, it was deadly. It killed tons of people. And we think about uh, how, how the, the ocean with storms and stuff can just lay waste to entire cities and, or islands. Um, but when you're in a safe place, uh, the sound of the ocean is a beautiful thing, right? And and uh, I, I think, again, this picture of it's good for those who are safe from this power of God, um, but it is mighty. Absolutely. All right, let's keep rolling then. We get to verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars uh, from his mouth, came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Um, this first little chunk about the stars, I think, would be really confusing for us uh, if we didn't get a description of what was going on. And even with the description of what is going on in verse 20, there's still more than a little bit of debate as to what these stars actually are, right? Um, so we find out in verse 20 that these stars are the angels of the seven churches. The lamp stands where the church is, of course. Now these stars um, in Jesus' hand are the seven angels. Um, but that, that word angel in Greek, it doesn't always have to be translated angel. It can be translated messenger too. So as we talk about these, these angels that are represented by the stars, these messengers of God, um, are we talking about actual angelic beings or are we talking about some other form of messenger like like maybe a, a, the pastors of the churches or elders of the churches? Um, what, what are we getting at here? We're not entirely sure. <laughs> yeah, there's, all, there's <laughs> debate about this. Um, uh, people go, you know, different ways with this. And I don't know that we can make any kind of firm you know, decision on this. 
Um, you know, uh, we talked about this ahead of this and we were really kind of wrestling with, you know, where, where should we encourage people to land on this? Um, and uh, Ben, you were telling uh, me or pointing my, this to my attention, pointing out this, this idea that uh, was it uh, Brighton that he encouraged that uh, we ought to recognize that, uh, sorry, I'm talking about Brighton and his commentary on Revelation that we've uh, uh, referred you to before. He, he talks about how the, through the rest of the book of Revelation, when it talks about these messengers, it is referring directly to an angel. And so that would give us a real strong indication that we should see this as an angelic being, uh, not a human, but a heavenly being. Um, and yet here, I don't know, Ben, if you want to illustrate this, there is a kind of, when we look at the content of these letters and how they're addressed, it seems like there's a strong indication this might be referring to humans, uh, a representative of the church, and maybe even we could say pastors. Yeah, and it's just that um, the churches are called to um, to repentance, um, at least some of them, so, or most of them are in some way or another. And so it would be rather odd, you know, uh, angels aren't called to, to repentance um, uh, anywhere in the scriptures. Um, they're either you know, God's servants or his enemies, and there's no transfer in between. And so, um, so it'd be odd language for, uh, an angelic being to be called for, uh, to repentance. And also it just, it does seem a little odd, um, that God would speak to a heavenly being through the mediation of St. John the apostle, you know, not that he couldn't, but it seems kind of an odd thing, um, to do. So, you know, who knows in that regard, like it's kind of, you know, either way you cut it, there, there are some, some issues that are, that are raised. Um, and like Matt and Mike were saying too, that the word angel, we just grab that directly from Greek. It means messenger. So that can be a human messenger. That can be a divine messenger, or not divine, but a heavenly um, messenger. What we typically think of when we say angel. Um, so that's where some of the, um, debate kind of comes in um so and i think maybe we can table some of this discussion more for or maybe we could all uh just set our sights on this as we go through the letters to the churches and see if we can find uh any more clarity on this issue as we look at the particular letters to see which one makes more sense i want to present maybe another suggestion to you Sometimes uh, in the scriptures, we have uh, something that's intentionally ambiguous, whether it's a vocabulary word or something in the grammar or some metaphor or whatever that it seems to actually be referring to more than one thing or, or it could be referring to uh, a couple different things and, and we can't really get a strong indication of which one it's talking about or there's an argument for both. Sometimes it actually does mean both. And so if it were that kind of case, and it's talking in, in one way about an angelic heavenly being, um, that this might mean that we, the churches are being represented before God by a heavenly being that, that looks after them. I remember another passage that talks about like a guardian angel that we each have, uh, thinking of God 
uh, having using angels and heavenly beings uh, to look out for us, to protect us, to go between heaven and earth on our behalf. Also, though, um, we we recognize that pastors are are messengers of God to the church and are His servants um, that that care for the churches, and that makes a whole lot of sense here too. And so maybe we don't need to pick just one of these, and uh, and and maybe they're both uh, in some way being referred to here. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that we'll get our exact answer of what it is today. I, I think we definitely won't, but we can be confident that they are in some way messengers of God. Mm-hmm. For the people <laughs> on the podcast, that was two <laughs> thumbs up. <laughs> All right, we've got the next bit of the description, and I have a visual aid, which is super fun. Uh, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. <laughs> is that the sword of Aslan? Uh, no, this is the oh. sword of opening letters with Hebrews 4.12 on it from my secretary. Hi, Chris. So, Thank by you. the way, everybody listening, Mike was actually putting a, a little two-edged sword in his mouth and <laughs> waving it around. Being ridiculous, like I do. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I think, actually, Hebrews 4.12, which is written on my two-edged sword letter opener, is a great place for us to go. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. So out of the mouth of, of Jesus, the Son of Man from this pa- passage, is coming a sharp two-edged sword. And I think Hebrews gives us a pretty good place to go. Like, this is the word of God, living and active, coming from the mouth of the Son of Man, right? The and the fact coming that, from the word, right? The word right. from the word. And and uh, the fact that this sword is in his mouth is another strong connection for us to understand that this is referring to his word. And um, and so it, it is, I think, drawing our attention to that verse and that, that understanding, which is a powerful thing to think that, that God's word does pierce to our heart and soul and, and divides. And we think of, of how God speaks to us and his word is powerful and effective. It, it cuts down and it, it builds up. Uh, it it uh, defeats its foes and defends right, his people and provides victory for his people. So again, this picture of, of uh, it slaying sinners and uh, we think of that uh, probably a picture here of the last day judgment day where he will come then and finally strike down his his foes but we can also think about how his word is living and active today and and it still attacks sinners and sin right and it it brings us to humility and repentance uh, but also we recognize that his word is effective um in in blessing uh, people who trust in him and who trust in his word, and so it's a good thing for those who are are uh, looking to God and respecting, revering his word, and finding comfort and and help from him who wields that sword in in our defense, defeating all of our foes, sin and death and the devil, all defeated by that sword of God, that word of God. Mm-hmm. When you hit on a good, fun Lutheran topic there while you were talking, Matt, you know, talking about the word of God, you hit on law and gospel too, 
right? I don't know that, <clears throat> that that's exactly what was in mind, the two edges of the sword being law and gospel, but as God's word come to us, or comes to us, the law does show us our sin. It kills us, right? We get into that a lot more, obviously. And then we hear that word of the gospel that Christ died for sinners like us. So it, it kills and it makes alive. So mm-hmm. And connection too, throughout all of the scriptures, once again, that God is our divine and mighty warrior. And, and he defeats the dragon, he slays Leviathan, he defeats the gods of Pharaoh in Egypt, he, he, uh, he clears the land of Canaan for his people, uh, thinking of heaven, he prepares that land, he defeats all the foes, he defeats sin, death, and the devil through the death and resurrection, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and, and prepares a home for us in, in the eternal promised land. And all through the power of his word, through the powerful power of this sword, um, wielded by Jesus. So let's let's move on to our very last thing that we're going to have time to cover today. It's the end of verse 16, where it talks about the face of, of the Son of Man being like the sun, shining in its full strength. All right, what is this pointing us to? Uh, I think, uh, again, Lou Brighton is really helpful <clears throat> in his comments on this and that he just notes that in the Old Testament, you know, the sun is often used as a metaphor for God and in particular for his glory, um, by which he blesses his people and bestows upon them light, uh, which produces life and so on. Um, and I think it's really important for us to to think about, too, because we often think about, you know, the the glory of God as in terms of, you know, might and power and strength and, and so on. And, and it is those things also, but God's glory is most clearly shown in Christ himself, um, particularly, you know, in his cross death and resurrection and ascension to heaven. So um, Lou Brighton again notes that in the, in the face and the whole person of Christ, um, that we see here in Revelation, you know, it is he through whom the glory and life-giving light of God shine forth in our present. And so, you know, if we want to know the glory of God, if we want to see the glory of God, we look at Christ and what he has done for sinners. It's not this abstract, um, I don't know, almost this abstract thing that which, you know, we are kind of driven by law to, you know, quote-unquote, do everything for the glory of God kind of a, a thing. But it is very much, very particularly Christ and him crucified, died, risen, ascended for sinners. Um, so that is you know, the glory of God in the face of Christ is how Scripture speaks of it also. So if we want to see God's glory, look at Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> and what he's done for us, so. I think about how when Moses met with God, um, you know, on the mountain and stuff. And, you know, he, when he would come down from meeting with God, his face was shining. And this is a reflection or it's like re- residual light that, that from God's sanctifying, holy, beautiful presence. Uh, and he, God was still veiled to a degree, you know, in that burning or non-burning bush and, and things like that. Um, but but still Moses would come away glowing like the moon reflects the light of the sun, right? And it can be bright and beautiful. And it was so bright that it was overwhelming for the people. They couldn't even stand to be in his presence. Uh, We think of 
to how the high priest would go into the presence of the Lord. And after on the day of atonement, after he would come out and set that scapegoat free and, and he had been in God's presence, he had to come back into the tabernacle and take off those, those linen robes and bathe his whole body because he was, as one commentator puts it, he was covered in the super holiness of God that had been shining on him. And it was too much for him to even integrate back into normal life with the people. And, and so this, this holy bright presence of God was on, on uh, these people who were just in his presence. But we also recognize here that this is not like the moon shining in this passage. This is like the sun shining. And so this is not a reflection or residual light that is on Jesus. It is coming from him. He is the source of that light. And, and that's what Ben is saying, that we look to Jesus for this light. And, and he is the light of the world, as John 1 says. I'm also thinking, making these connections to Jesus, the light of the world, and the benediction, the Aaronic benediction that we hear from back in in the uh, Old Testament uh, and their worship, that we, we hear that God commanded Aaron, the high priest, to say, uh, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And and what a powerful picture that is. That is God demanding that this blessing be given to the people that he desired for his holiness and his grace to be given to the people. And we see that that happens in Jesus our high priest, our sacrifice, who allows us to, with confidence, come into the presence of God, which would otherwise kill us and be a bad thing, like we think of the sword and the fire and that that intense stare of Jesus. All these things would be evil, or they, they would not be evil, excuse me, they would be uh, bad news for evil people. But uh, But for those of us who have been washed clean in the blood of the Lamb, uh, those who have received this gift of peace from Jesus, uh, we can come in to look at his face and receive his grace and, and blessing and peace. Awesome. Well, I think that ties us up for the week. Um, it's good to be back. A couple weeks away was kind of mm-hmm. rough, guys. So good yeah. to be back mm-hmm. with you. I'll, I'll go, I'm going to try and uh, give you my favorite quote of today, and I'm going to butcher it, but it's a Ben quote. Uh, you want to see the glory of God? Look to Jesus, right? Did I get it good enough, Ben? Mm-hmm. Yep. My right, brother, will you close us in prayer? Yeah. Thanks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks uh, once again that we can uh, look at your word and see uh, what you have written for us. And we thank you for the comfort of uh, your word that you gave to uh, St. John that we receive as well, that you are currently uh, reigning on your throne, uh, regardless of whatever chaos there may be on this earth. Um, You are the Lord, the one who sits on the throne, and you hold all things in your hand. And we uh, thank you you that you came to live and die and rise again for us, that we may look forward to the fullness of your kingdom where... Again, you say at the end of Revelation that there will be no sun there, for you will be 
the light. And so uh, thank you that we have that hope in the midst of uh, coronavirus virus craziness, in the midst of election craziness, in the midst of all manner of craziness in a sinful world that um, not only are you reigning on the throne, but we can look forward to that day in the fullness of your kingdom uh, to live with you in peace and righteousness forevermore. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Guys, we forgot something really important. We did? Yeah. This oh. is Matt Nelson. <laughs> that is Ben Baker. I am Mike Hussey. Mike Natale is not with us. But thanks for listening to God's Word During Exile. We'll be back with more Revelation next week. God bless. Right.